Most people are like sheep, nice, harmless creatures who want nothing more than to be left alone so they can graze. But then, of course, there are wolves, who want nothing more than to eat the sheep. But there's a third kind of person, the sheepdog. Sheepdogs have fangs, like wolves. But their instinct isn't predation, it's protection. All they want, what they live for, is to protect the flock. Barry Eisler, Livia Lone. The Dark Black, Adiposeer. Life is a series of stages, from birth to childhood, and on and on. We are all nothing but our processes. Our biology rises and falls in incremental steps, growing and expanding, then contracting and dying. The man I woke up as today is only an echo of the man I was yesterday, a synthesis of who I was and who I want to be, fueled by the inputs I received throughout all my yesterdays. Each night as I sleep, my busy brain processes the new data to integrate it into the scaffold of my identity, and then I awake once more, tada, a new man. There is no fixed identity for any living thing, no essential core that remains unchanged throughout life. We grow, we adapt, we flourish, we wither, and finally our identity disperses in death. But even then our bodies continue to change. Death itself is a series of stages, four of them to be exact. The first stage of a newly dead corpse is classified as fresh. These are the victims we most commonly encounter, like Gillian Falakis. After the first few minutes, cells are suffocated by lack of oxygen and start to die. They lose the ability to pass wastes, such as carbon dioxide, which is so acidic it can rupture cell walls. Cellular lysosomes burst and leak digestive enzymes back into the cell, blistering internal tissues and consuming the cell from the inside out. Over the first six days, the corpse begins to smell and show signs of decay. The appearance of the corpse remains mostly unchanged, but deep skin cells slough from the body, resulting in skin slippage. After a few hours, rigor mortis begins in the eyelids, jaw, and neck. Calcium ions, no longer pumped into muscles to keep them supple, lock up. Lactic acid precipitates through the system as cells continue producing their energy without added oxygen. Muscles contract further. Algor mortis cools the body to ambient temperature. Liver mortis settles red and white blood cells and gives the epidermis a deep, purplish cast. Rigor mortis generally peaks after 24 hours. Then the body begins to relax as cells die of autolysis. By the end of six days, cells start to decompose and release sulfur-rich compounds. This is when the body starts to really stink. After a week, the corpse enters the second stage, classified as bloat. Bacteria, fungi, and protozoa feed on nutrient-rich tissues as they disintegrate, hastening their collapse. They emit gases such as carbon dioxide, methane, hydrogen sulfide, and volatile organic compounds such as benzene that distend tissues. These bodies are the worst to find. They can fall apart in your hands or pop like a balloon. 
By the fourth week, the corpse has entered the third stage, classified as active decay. But not every body is created equal. A buried corpse is more acidic, and its tissues may last longer, up to a couple of years if oxygen is unavailable. The more extreme the pH, the faster the decomposition. Most tissues have broken down into wet, yellow paste. If the body is warm and moist, the process of adiposeer may begin, which is historically the source of soap, as derived from animal carcasses. By the 51st day, the corpse has entered the fourth stage, classified as dry. Tissues are papery. The smell is mostly gone. Bones continue a decomposition process called diagenesis. Once the collagen within bones decomposes, they decay into porous scaffolds of the mineral hydroxyapatite. Mostly, this mineral gets ground down to a fine dust, but other minerals can fill the cracks and fossilize the bones for something like eternity. When Sarah wasn't with me, clinical academy training like this became critical in my investigations. She was a walking forensics lab connected in real time to the best diagnostics on Earth, but she still had her days off, and I didn't. This corpse, this other corpse, which I found by myself on this godforsaken ramshackle arcolo in a low-rent district of the Red Orb, with no one to even keep an eye on the tribe of long-haired bit-jump freaks who muttered and shuffled behind me while I inspected the body, had already decomposed into stage three, active decay. I had unearthed one pale purple shoulder and half the man's head with his staring gray eyeball looking past me at the Arcolo's distant ceiling. Back up, I called in on the Q-band before my hand even found my holster, but Scarby stayed quiet. She sensed no threats. The silent freaks watched me with glazed eyes and gaping mouths. They probably hadn't had such a good show in years. Well, 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 who's this? I asked as I brushed the brown-black soil off the body. I studied all these potential suspects, but they just stared back at me, mute and astonished. Uh, nobody knows, sir, the eldest, a hollow-chested man with pale stringy hair, managed to say. Nobody knows, I repeated. I don't buy it. You don't? he asked blankly. I sighed. This is like a dog and pony show, but someone forgot the pony. I could tell he was itching to bit jump away, but even those highs couldn't compete with this mystery. See if you can follow me on this one, chief. You're telling me you don't know who this is here. I don't, he agreed in a reedy voice. You've never seen him before. I haven't, he echoed. Then how would you know, I asked, if anyone else had ever seen him before? He stepped back in confusion. His inbred sons and daughters huddled together in unwashed misery. They all looked back at me, spooked. Nobody, I asked, realizing as I did that the old man had probably been right. He could speak for all of them because his was the only mouth connected to a brain on the whole habitat. Ugh, white trash in space. This is what humanity's conquest of the solar system looked like up close. Okay, everybody, just back up. Go stand along that wall, will you? And keep your hands where I can see them. I advanced on them, big and menacing in my mantle. They scuttled to the far wall and cowered in distress. I held the old man. You. What's your name again? Me? I'm Lint. Gustavo Lint. Right. Go fetch a shovel, will you?
Two bodies in two days, Samael's voice echoed in my head, a repellent whine. I foresee my calendar filling up with meetings, Bloom. I'll get you a report soon, sir, I answered aloud, with sorrow out today. Yes, you're just useless at fundamental police work without her, aren't you? Were you at least able to establish a time of death? I swallowed my retort and muttered, Gotta be more than two months. And a cause. Not a mark on him, sir, could be like Philacus, but the body is too far gone for me to confirm that without better tools. Unsatisfactory. Standard analysis requires nearly 130% more details than you have provided. Well, of course it does, I snapped. The words hung in the still air of the cruiser, my desk lamp casting a small pool of light in all the darkness. And we'll get them for you right away, sir. The problem with this fancy Q-band instant communication magic is we've lost our deliberation, our patience. I'm not useless. None of you can imagine what it was like for us up in the iron colonies during the sieges. We starved. We went without electricity for 16 months. There are other ways of doing things, you know. Older ways. Sure, they're slower. But very often, they're much better. Sorry, Bloom. In that speech of self-pity, did you ever actually say something relevant? I was too busy shuddering in disgust to hear you. I know, and I can feel it, sir. Weird. The Cuban transmitted just a shadow of emotion from person to person, and I could feel his, a piquant mixture of horror and revulsion at my mention of the Iron Colonies. The captain had always held little love for the past, his own or anyone else's, and pursued the future and his impending ascension with increasing zeal. Mine servants lost all interest in the affairs of humans, as their gazes shifted upward and outward. Their last few years, most of them were no better than lame ducks, absentees awaiting their release. They could be the worst managers. Like with the Falakas crime scene, the Arkolo here is otherwise clean. No infractions, major or minor, for anyone on board, unless profound stupidity is illegal. Amazing how little some folks need to survive on an Arkolo these days. This crew are all a new type of bit-jump addict we've been seeing up here lately. The orbs are suddenly cheap enough that we have slums. Is this your attempt at social analysis? Please do try to stay on the subject. The amount of time in my meetings I can devote to the half-formed views of an untrained underling is precisely zero. Come on, boss. Just doing my job. You want better analysis? Send me back to the academy for tactical training. This was a common request of mine. A new rapid reaction force called the Break Squad had been put together in the last few years, made up mostly of veterans like me with battlefield experience. And every new member of the Break Squad were academy-trained tactical officers. Inspectors need not apply. Sorrow and I were on the track to be trained as mine servants, but the overmind had never meant much to me. I didn't want universal epiphanies and insights into the true nature of the universe. I only wanted a better pay scale. A small pile of money to redeem my father from cold storage and still have enough to buy my own habitat someday and retire within and tell the rest of the entire living, breathing universe to go fuck itself sideways. But Samael had little respect for the break squad. Blissfully basking in the light of his overmind revelations, he ignored every request I made to get transferred from cruiser duty into more of a combat role. He wanted this old familiar tool to stay in his hand where he needed it, even if he did curse it at every turn for being useless. 
Look, Bloom, now's not the time to ask for favors. And trust me, the last thing you want to do is put yourself back in the Academy right now. It's a nest of intrigue. We're getting pressure from the councils and estates, budget cuts, power struggles. The Dark Black is not the army of might it used to be. Dr. General Keats is nearing his release, and the other generals are already fighting, positioning themselves. They might actually force me to choose among them soon. I can only hope my own release occurs before I'm forced to drink their sewage and call it champagne. Well, shit. This was far more information than Samael usually shared, but his confession sounded fretful. For a moment, I felt sorry for him. The Dark Black worked their mind servants like slaves, extracting as much brilliance as they could before they slipped away. I tried a different angle. Well, if I had my own dedicated biolab on board, then I could get you your results when you— And who'd run it, you? I ignored his derisive tone. Just send a friend. No, no more friends for us. They were found to be potentials. Potentials? Friends? They aren't past the limit. No way. Of course they aren't, but we can't prove it to the satisfaction of the regents. Imagine how people feel here at the office and in their homes. They have friends everywhere. They're part of their lives. Friends were the most complex robotics allowed since the end of the motor wars. By law, no unsupervised machine can ever outperform the Kuo-Shi limit, which is roughly the mental or physical performance of a two-year-old child. Friends are useful, though, specialized to the point of idiocy. I could absolutely use one of my own up here, toddling around and cleaning up after me. They're slow, but they don't ever sleep. A friend slave to a biolab could push buttons all day long and do piles of tedious work. You can't just hobble one for me. I don't need a fully functioning friend. No, they're requiring all friends to be destroyed. Absolutely no exceptions. My niece is reportedly beside herself with grief. Well, I guess that's what happens when the councils get filled with fanatics. I mean, I fought and bled to keep machines stupid. There isn't a man in the orbs who hates motors more than me, but they're taking this too far. Obviously. Now, stop chattering at me about what you need or don't need. While we've been talking, your next call has come in. Another alarm is going off. Just how many of these new Arcalos have we seen now, Blum? Seventeen? Yeah, something awful like that. And that was just in the last, what, nine weeks? Saro nodded, accessing her data. Her moat stood behind me while I sat at the console, pretending to supervise the cruiser's flight. We all knew I was a shit pilot, and that if the autonomous systems failed and sent me plummeting into the nearest gravity well at a significant portion of light speed, there was little I could do before we crashed beside wet my pants. But machines smart enough to fly spaceships were prescribed by the Kuo-Shi limit. By law, a human had to fly this ship. So I idly scanned a few screens displaying values for everything from hull integrity to fuel temperature. They had wanted to pipe the ship's controls into my head, but I insisted on keeping the ship's visuals on external screens where they belonged. I had enough blasted nightmares without starting to confuse a cruiser's identity with my own, and I just didn't like things so easy. I'd struggle through each day with the blessings and curses I was born with. It would be easy to stuff myself full of tech in my eyes and brain and fingertips. I knew so many cops who had. 
But in an age where we'd been forced to draw a line in blood on the limits technology could reach, it was an easy decision to keep this enemy on the far side of the wall made of my own skin and bones. The screens displayed a colorful series of enhanced graphs and images declaring that all was nominal, safe, and secure. We were preparing for a long haul, and I had to pay more attention than usual, which made me crabby, a condition all too familiar to my partner. Yeah, seventeen, she confirmed. I had no idea there were so many. Someday somebody's going to run a census up here, and we're going to learn all kinds of things. So tell me what I missed yesterday. I need the whole sordid tale. One second. A gust of solar wind approached us, racing up and out from the surface of the sun to our position out here on the far edge of the red orb. We'd catch this wave and ride it out. For days. The weather front boiled up, luminous in false color on my screens. A big flare, I was happy to see. With any luck, we'd be there and back in civilized space by next week. The solar wave approached, and I locked myself into my chair. I opened up the engines, fired the chutes, and held on. So they're a clan of your typical Canadian muck farmers and their trailer in the sky. They spend their days growing potatoes and, I don't know, exchanging fungal infections with close relatives. Forty-seven people, and almost all of them look like the man in charge. Let's see. Lint. Owner's name is Gustavo Lint. L-I-N-D-T. I wasn't able to access his full record because my only link to humanity was out getting her nails done. It was a lovely day off. Thanks for asking. I snorted in reply. The cruiser hummed along at 400 kilometers per second. I added microseconds to my life with time dilation effects, saving them up for a half-hour nap someday. So we got the call, just like for Falakis. Security breach, as reported by a newly installed alarm system. Off I went. Took two hours to rise 13 rings. Finally found the Arcolo in a garbage pile of old SNRCs and tent orbitals, all very run down and 30 years old. I thought the whole pile was abandoned, but no. There's this one shiny little Arcolo hiding right there in the center of the heap, probably scavenging the wrecks. So I lock and knock, and they take forever to let me in. They think you're going to bust them for scavenging. And I would, too, if it was illegal. Slap those idiots around. Too long alone with too few brains. That's Bloom, lover of all mankind. You know me. So they finally open the door, and this old one, Gustavo, he's worse than Falakis, doesn't know about the alarm, doesn't care, doesn't know why it's been going off, and doesn't mind if I look around. It's a trash heap, but I don't really find any infractions. Just looks like someone's drug lab blew up in their basement. But my precious new pistol starts chirping about an anomalous benzene reading, half a meter deep in a planter filled with potting soil. So I dig. I shrugged. With the sun at our backs, the view was filled with galactic majesty. Clouds of purple and orange and red and blue. Stars and quasars and galactic cores blazing at us from countless sources. Still my favorite view in the known universe. And what did they say for themselves? Never seen the body. Never knew the man. Nobody. They didn't know how he'd gotten on board or what he was doing there. Correct. Wait, she thought aloud. What if we showed them a picture of Philakis? Did you ask about him? Yep, I did. I showed them his picture. See, I'm not the mental midget you think I am. 
and nothing. We listened to the hum of the engines and watched the stars twinkling in the void. And how about you? I asked. Dig up anything? No bodies, she said with a wry smile. Research got you anything else? Hardly had time to do any. Keta's birthday is next week and he had a flyball match at the park. I spent all day ferrying him and his friends around. Um, I said distinctly. Oh, just keep it to yourself, Bloom, she snapped. If I wanted a hermit's life, I'd lock myself in a cruiser for years just like you, but I don't. Out here all by myself, you know, I responded in a light tone, knowing I had the upper hand in this argument. No days off for me. I've been working on the case now for four days straight. Could have used a few more leads, you know. Yeah, and they could use another ranger on Keta's wings. Or if you can't take it anymore, Inspector, you could quit your job and start a junior flyball league yourself. Think about that the next time you're blaming everyone for your misery. It's not blame. It's guilt. Guilt's a useful thing, Sorrow. Oh, no, it isn't. It's a historical artifact, just like you. Guilt is a tool for social engineers, useful for controlling the masses. But in this day and age, we get whatever life we want without guilt. And Keta won't be six years old forever, and I'd like to be part of his childhood before it's over. All right. Back to the case, Inspector, I relented. Back to the case, she agreed. Do all the new Arkelos have these alarm systems? I'll check. She dropped out for a moment. I felt empty inside. Our arguments used to make me so angry. Now they were all so worn down, I felt nothing but old. I queried the flight time. 136 hours to my destination. Yeah, most of them do have alarms, she eventually told me. Then it looks like we'll have no shortage of work in the near future. Job security, she agreed. After a long silence sailing through the dark, Sarah's moat stirred. Aha, we got a name for your body. I grunted, half asleep, and stirred. Hmm? Fabio Camata. Lovely name. Who was he? Most recently, a missing person. You don't say. Missing for eleven months. I've got it all right here, she said with satisfaction, uncovering a hidden treasure. I dozed while she read his record. Well, at least it's somebody with an actual record. A record that puts us on a trail. Let's see. Only one major infraction forcibly baptized his daughter when she was 12. Things got worse as she grew up and she opted for sanctuary. He didn't dispute the sentence, agreed to modeling, and finished the classwork without complaint. Fully rehabilitated. Now fully dead. Who'd he work for? Mostly himself, a veteran like you, got an assistant mechanic certification in the Marines, knew his way around the orbs. He was picking up contracts from all over. Hadn't been down to earth for five years since a wedding. The daughter. Yep. A religious ceremony. Nope. Well, you lost that battle, didn't you, Flavio? Daughter was interviewed after he went missing, said she wasn't on speaking terms with her father and she couldn't help. It's noted that she was so hostile to dark black investigators and so ambivalent about her father's disappearance that she was a suspect until she produced an alibi. She lives in the undergreen anyway, and he was most likely murdered in January. The polar caps ice over these days during the winter, and she'd have to prove need in a written statement to get access to the surface, much less get herself through an official spaceport without being noticed. 
Well, I want to hear about all your potential suspects, but it's dinner time. I hauled myself up out of my chair, stiff and sore, wondering just how much of my blood had pooled in my ankles at this acceleration. I waddled over to my favorite cabinet and took out a bottle of Karali gin. I poured myself a tall glass and added a drop of glow lime and settled back down into my chair. Sarah watched me with a maternal frown, hand on hip. I slurped. Ah, spicy. Good old Keralia. Why couldn't we be finding bodies in their infamous orbital of sin? Someone floating face down in a vat of their twenty-year finest with pearl onions. I don't think there's any connection, I finally said. What, the bodies? Yeah, Falakas and Kamada. Feels like coincidence. Two dead in the red orb in two days. Feels like coincidence. Yeah, call it... Half coincidence and half bad luck. There's no common themes here. Everything about the cases is different. We're not even sure if Balakis is a murderer. We're sure Kamada is? Oh, no, I retorted sarcastically. Suicide. He buried himself in the planter. Inspector, Sarah remonstrated. The chance of two men dying randomly in the red orb in two days are over 306 million to one. Murders are not senseless. They are committed for reasons, whether or not your feelings support that fact. And in this case, two murders must share a single cause. There must be a hidden connection somewhere in all this, and we must find out what it is. I knew better than to argue. She had a mathematical brain that fixed these numbers as tangible facts on a graph, upon which she could build the rest of her clockwork reality. Sorrow didn't struggle against her career track as I did. She was a perfect candidate for the mine servants, and we knew after her kids were raised and gone, she would gladly join their inhuman ranks. Still, numbers were useless if they didn't lead anywhere. She saw in my disbelieving eyes that at this moment I didn't give a damn for police work. She dropped her eyes and pursed her lips, knowing that I was spoiling for a fight, but unwilling to start one. Well, this is what they get. If the Dark Black wanted me working every day of the year in a flying box, then they'd just have to take all the bad with the good. If Pollyanna was going to show up here after a nice refresher and plead with me about the innate order and reasonable sense of the universe, then, yeah, I was definitely going to piss all over her parade. I had a tall glass of gin in my hand and enough air to keep me alive for two weeks. But that's about all I had. Still, I'd made the pretty doll sad and that tugged at my heart. I tried to think of something helpful to say. Well, maybe there's an answer at Ceres, I muttered. We peered at the screens together. We'd departed the red orb and crossed an invisible boundary from the inner solar system into the outer. Beyond the Martian orbit, the asteroid belt begins. Its queen is Ceres, a dwarf planet made of solid ice. Well, it used to be made of solid ice. Now it was made of mining companies. There she was, shining brighter than the background of stars, straight ahead, Ceres. I hadn't been this far out since the wars. Thanks for listening to The Dark Black. Make sure to tune in next week for more crimes and murders across the solar system. But that's just the kind of thing you can expect here on The Unuseful Hour.